0: Hey friends, I wanna let you know about this year's Conversations in the Raw. Conversations in the Raw is a discipleship learning experience that follows the Exiles in Babylon conference. So this year at the conference, we're tackling several topics, including women in leadership, The future of the church, disability in the church, and multi ethnic perspectives on American Christianity. And so, Conversations in the Raw is an online learning cohort that dives deeper into these topics following the conference. You can sign up for one or all of the conversations if you want. And each cohort, they'll meet online for about an hour and a half to engage in honest, curious conversations with a leader and other cohort members. And there's only three meetings, so it's not like an overwhelming commitment. Everyone who goes through conversations will receive a certificate. I know that some of you have jobs that encourage you to get like learning certificates. So you can do that through conversations. Also, also this year, we're teaming up with Denver Seminary and Eternity Bible College to offer a four credit option for Conversations in the Raw. I mean, that's crazy, right? For just 500 bucks, you can get three master's level credits from Denver Seminary or three undergrad credits from Eternity Bible College. You'll have to do extra work, obviously, but I mean, this is a screaming deal to get credit from an innovative learning experience. So go to theologyintherod.com forward slash conversations to learn more about conversations in the raw. That's theologyintherod.com forward slash conversations. Think deeply, love widely through Conversations in the Raw. Hey friends, my guest today is Dr. Ryan Tafalowski. He has a PhD in systematic theology and a master's degree in history from the University of Edinburgh and is a professor of uh, theology and Christian thought at Denver Seminary. He also pastors a church in the Denver area. He's the author of a few different books. Um, His dissertation, As You Will Learn, is titled uh, Dark, Depressing Riddle: Germans, Jews, and the Meaning of Volk in the Theology of Paul Altos." Altos, Altos, um, basically is an expert in uh, Nazism and Nazi theology and all and the kind of German Christian response to the rise of Hitler and the Nazi Party. So that's where we start out, and then we go to more current day conversations around Christian nationalism. So buckle up, Buttercups. Here we go. Welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only. Dr. Ryan Tafalowski. Dr. Ryan Tafalowski. That just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm always sympathetic with people with interesting last names. Um, (laughs) um, Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ryan. And uh, I mean, you've done a lot of work in many different areas um the one that's i mean your dissertation i'm not sure if this is the title of your dis- 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 dissertation but dark depressing riddle germans jews and the meaning of the volk in the theology of paul athius is that right uh, althaus yeah althaus alt althaus yeah, yeah
1: yeah it's um well think of speaking of things that roll off the tongue terrible <laughs> terrible title for a monograph uh but uh, that's true that's the title
0: now what so t- you deal a lot with like German Christian nationalism. Like that's been the Mm -hmm. air you've been breathing for a while. Can you unpack for us what that is? And I, you know, the term Christian nationalist has become such a widely talked about thing in our American context. I would love to go back to um, almost a century ago and hear about another nationalist movement and see if there are any parallels or how you can um, maybe shed some light on what we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I sort of colloquially say that I've got an interest in Nazi theologians, although that probably puts it a little too bluntly. Yeah. I'm don't, actually don't interested <laughs> in uh, conservative Lutheran theologians who found themselves mixed up with national socialism for a time. Because uh, I actually think that that's more interesting than sort of straight up villains, right? There are these figures that everyone's familiar with. like You can, you can think of someone like Martin Heidegger who's just really excited about Nazism from the beginning and then is sort of unrepentant about it after the war. Um, I looked at figures, and and one guy in particular, Paul Althaus, who, um, for reasons that I think, if we're being charitable, uh, were understandable in his context. He got mixed up in a movement that he just did not appreciate the scale of. And, um, yeah, I'm actually working on a translation of his sermons right now from 1945, right at the end of the war, where he's sort of reflecting on this uh, and saying, you know, we, we thought that Hitler was a gift and miracle of God. That's what he called Hitler in 1933. Uh, And then in 1945, he says, "Uh, yeah, I was wrong about that. And uh, yeah, he was wrong about that.
0: Can can you take us back to kind of give us a kind of one-on-one how was Paul Althaus, Althaus? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Who was he and how did he get wrapped up in the national and what was maybe the nationalistic movement that he got wrapped up in, and then mm. what caused him to kind of rethink his position in forty five?
1: Yeah, good question. So he um is a Luther scholar. Uh, primarily, that's how he's known. You know, most of his work has not been translated. He's not especially important in the twentieth century, you know which makes him ideal for a PhD dissert- <laughs> dissertation, right? I started <laughs> wanting to write on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then I realized, oh, so did everybody else in the yeah. universe. Um, and then I said, oh, maybe Bart would be interesting. And there's even more books on that. So I ended up with Althaus, um, who uh, he's quite important as an interpreter of Luther. Some of his books that have been translated are uh, The Ethics of Martin Luther and The Theology of Martin Luther. You'll still find those on um, seminary syllabi and uh, and things like this. So he was a Luther scholar. He was a New Testament scholar. He taught New Testament and kind of historical theology at the University of Erlangen in Germany, which is sort of a conservative, confessional Lutheran school, right? That was sort of its reputation in the 20th century. Um, and he was there um, for most of his career. He's got an interesting biography. I mean, he was raised in a sort of idyllic uh, rural town in Germany. Uh, he fought in the First World War um, in in the eastern front and what is now poland uh he was a chaplain military chaplain saw saw the first world war there and so he's he's got these sort of um yeah he's he's got these sort of patriotic tendencies that are rooted in that period of his life where he just um you know he he was a soldier uh and witnessed um what you know what are unquestionably atrocities on both sides of the war he mm-hmm. saw germans being persecuted, uh, by the Russians, at least that was his interpretation. So he's got this nationalistic streak already as a young man. Um, but you know, and then he, he is ordained as a Lutheran minister. He ends up teaching in a different, a few different places. And then he ends up in this sort of conservative bastion in Erlangen. And, And, um, yeah, he, he's quite a moderate fellow. That's how he understood himself. Conservative, certainly theologically, politically, um, socially, but certainly not some sort of rabid nationalist, right. That you get, in the 1930s with the rise of nationalism, where uh, the church basically splinters into three factions, one that's really excited about Nazism, one that uh, is resistant to the totalitarian claims of Nazism, and then a sort of unaffiliated middle uh, that's sort of broadly conservative, willing to give Hitler a chance, um, but, but usually turn on him by the late 1930s. And so he another really important thing to mention is he he's he's uh, in the context of the Weimar Republic, which was Germany's uh, really short-lived democracy that emerged after the First World War and lasted only about twelve years till the Nazis came to power. so he he had a sort of nostalgic longing for the German Empire and the monarchy. So there's a lot of mm. things rushing together
0: what what? how would you describe for somebody that's never even heard the word nazi say because i mean I, we just think nazis holocaust racist symbol of well all that's wrong with humanity what take us back to like when the nazi is it was it a political party a movement mm-hmm. both and and yep. did it have explicit christian ties or roots or was it kind of more religious or yeah just to tell us about the rise of the Nazi party, I guess.
1: Yeah, good question. So uh, yes, it does. Nazi is short. Uh, it's an abbreviation for what translates as a National Socialist Workers Party, uh, which is all one word in German, like uh, all words in German. It's like a sentence long, yeah. right? So uh, yeah, it's a party, uh, a conservative coalition that emerged uh, as a resistance movement within the Weimar Republic, because uh, after the, the dissolution of the monarchy, you had a parliamentary Uh, democracy take its place. That's the first time Germany had ever tried it. And it was a time of tremendous sort of unrest. Uh, There's lots of anxiety in the air. Um, And so this conservative coalition gained some traction in that context. And that's typical, right? Authoritarian movements usually do gain uh, traction in times of social upheaval where there's lots of uncertainty. And that's because they offered a worldview that had lots of ideological clarity, right? That's what was appealing about it, right? So Mm. uh, German, good, right? Uh, Now, that doesn't sound that controversial. But, you know, when the First World War ended, the Germans had to sign a, a treaty taking full responsibility for the war and all of its catastrophic aftermath. So people were um, really depressed. The Weimar Republic was a time where people felt like they needed to be ashamed of their German-ness, they needed to embrace these sort of globalized, pluralist ideals, and a lot of Germans didn't want to. So when someone comes along and says, hey, no, actually your Germanness is good, you should celebrate it, that's attractive.
0: So it was a very, pro-Germ- very pro-German, okay, movement.
1: Yeah, yeah, so Hitler comes along, Um, And in his rhetoric says, hey, the Versailles Treaty is just an absolute travesty, right? And people like Althaus who fought in the war and saw it agreed, said, yeah, this is an absolute scandal. Um, We were parties to the war, but, you know, we we can't take full responsibility and we're the ones bearing all the consequences. You know, Germany's economy is in a total tailspin. Um, So, yeah, there's that factor. Uh, you also see fascism on the rise across Europe at the same time. You get fascism emerging in Italy, of course, and also in Spain. So this stuff is in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Hitler is originally just elected as chancellor, right? Democratically elected. Okay. Um, and then once he's in, he, he pulls these incredibly shrewd maneuvers where he basically passes legislation that installs him as, well, the Fuhrer,
0: the leader. That's yeah. so, okay, so chancellor and Fu- Fuhrer. I used to be able to pronounce that. <laughs> Those are different. <laughs> one is kind of a democratically elected leader. The other one is more of more of a dict. I mean, more of a has a lot more just isolated power. Would, would that be a way to distinguish the two?
1: He was able to sort of maneuver uh, Germany's political system to invest his person with a tremendous amount of power and discretion. And that's why you know when people say, "Oh, we're ha- we're we're on the verge of becoming Nazi Germany here in America," I'm always suspicious of that sort of argument because our government is um, devised in such a way that makes that really difficult to do.
0: Even if you had a president that was very narcissistic, had a lot of power <laughs> issues, like even that there's so many checks that it wouldn't, it's not, um, a well, web.
1: yeah, I mean, we, we saw, we saw our democratic institutions put to a stress test in the last few years and they, they proved as of yet more durable than what Weimar Germany's were. Right. Yeah. Uh, when the nazis get in they they launch this entire program that that's across the entire government it usually gets translated as coordination or uh, synchronization or something like this where they they sought to align all of the public institutions along uh, their own ideological lines so within several years like the independent independent media disintegrates the independent judiciary disintegrates you've got uh, all the branches of the government sort of falling into line behind a Nazi government, including the church, which in Germany, right? For Americans, this is strange, but you've got a state church in Germany, which meaning all your pastors, all your theology professors are state employees, right? And so the church uh, also was subjected to this pressure of coordination. And that didn't go, I think, as successfully as the Nazis had hoped. But in the United States, that would be really hard to do because you know the the media is so fragmented, um, and you've got bicameral government in the in Congress, and then you've also got the judiciary that's supposed to check executive power. Mm-hmm. It would just be hard to do. Not you, impossible.
0: Yeah, you've used three three words to describe the Nazi Party that from our from our American modern standpoint seems seem to be at odds with each other. But conservative, socialist, and fascist. Can you unpack? what those mean in that context. Cause some people would see socialism as the opposite of fascism. Although it does seem like most socialists from my very, I mean, totally, yeah. I could be totally wrong, but like turn either turn into fascism really easily or quickly, or I don't know, um, mm-hmm. but conservative, I don't picture like socialists and conservative as two. <laughs> <doing laughs> Things that would thing. go
1: together. Yeah. 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 So there's some, some clarification that needs to be done here. Right. So, I'll put it this way. In the circles where I grew up, the word liberal was used to describe any view with which you personally disagreed, And it, uh, and it do- didn't matter what the content of the view was, right? You could call Marxism liberal or you could call fascism liberal. Well, that's incoherent. That doesn't make any sense. They're they're on ep- opposite sides of the political spectrum. This is true of theology also, right? Liberal has a very particular meaning in theology, right? It's It's an approach to theology that we typically associate with Schleiermacher and his descendants, right? And so um, even, but, uh, even in Weimar Germany and early National Socialism, even theologians who were politically, uh, sorry, theologically liberal were politically and socially conservative. So we have to distinguish between political and social and okay. uh, theological when we use these words. So, um, yeah, so that's one thing to say. Um, socialist in the sense that uh, it coordinated all the organs of the government to a command economy, right? So that's we mean that in an economics. And then fascism, I don't, to to my knowledge, and I, I don't, I don't know, it, it could have happened. I'm just saying, to my knowledge, the Nazis don't refer to themselves as fascist. That's okay. um, a term that gets added later. But by that, we just mean an authoritarian response to a crisis of pluralism. So in in if you understand it in that way all these things actually can fit together. They're they're trying to they're trying to I interpret Nazism anyway or certainly I should have put it this way. I interpret Christian support for Nazism in the 30s as a response to pluralism. But there's all there's all this anxiety about civilization changing really rapidly and they see these three things, a command economy, centralized power, um, and a return to sort of basic German values as really attractive.
0: I mean, that does have parallels for today, but we can hold off on that for a second. Mm-hmm. But um, So it did have this kind of, in response to kind of a, like, woe is us, we're German, we screwed things up, to wait a minute, but we're still German, like almost this like ethnocentric like, German exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. You know, that like, hey, we're, you know, we have oh, a yes. great country. We're So I had a lot of that kind of, Patriotic fervor that was driving it? Would that be accurate? Yeah. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, sorry. I'll just add here. Altas has this really interesting feature to his theology where he thinks that every ethnic group is supposed to be segregated from one another, right? So he's got this sort of segregationist logic. And he thinks that God has instilled every different ethnic group with a different quality that allows them to fulfill their destiny, which God has given them in world history. Um, And, you know, surprise, surprise. Uh, for example, he thinks that Africans, black people, their gift is physical strength, which means they're meant for manual labor. So he doesn't come out and endorse slavery, but it's not that hard to understand how he would, um, and he thinks surprise, surprise, Germans are endowed with a vast genius that no other country has. And they're meant to lead civilization into its ultimate destiny.
0: Wow. So there were, I was going to ask like when the Nazi party came to power, did it have these kind of blatant racist, Themes that—that's what always shocks me. Like, how do you mm-hmm. get so much support? And, and assuming that there's a good, you know, it's a hundred years ago. A lot of people were bl- a lot more maybe blatantly racist back then. But did it have? Was it? Was it? Did it succeed on that kind of banner? Was that more in the in the background? Was it more subtle when it when they came to power? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that's so shocking about National Socialism is that uh, it it didn't really disguise its ideology. And okay. uh, there's there's lots of be- there's been lots of scholarly work on this in recent years. Um, one guy, a guy named Jeffrey Herf, has written a book called The Jewish Enemy, in which he he makes a painstaking case, and he shows pretty clearly, like, that the Nazis told you exactly what they planned to do, and then they did it, <laughs> right? Uh, and he even shows, for example, like uh, placards at bus stops saying things like the Jews are our misfortune, right? It just says it like, you know, it's like waiting to get on the train or something. And you look over and there's an advertisement for like how Jews are the end of German society. Right. And if you've read Mein Kampf, I mean, Hitler's pretty clear in there too, that he's, he's got a worldview of Aryan supremacy, um, undergirded by this this notion that history is driven by violent conflict. Altaus thinks that too. A lot of these thinkers do.
0: So how did that gain such widespread public support? Were people just very anti-Semitic or were they kind of like, what's the other yep. answer? I don't know.
1: Well, there's a couple things going on. I mean, uh, another guy named Christopher Browning has written a book called Ordinary Men, which which sold a lot of copies. It was a sort of semi-scholarly book in which he showed uh, that actually most Germans didn't have to be coerced into complicity with the Holocaust. Most Germans were happy to help. <laughs> oh, wow. um, and he shows that, you know, you've got these special mobile units in the German army, Einsatzgruppen, who collect uh, Jews and exterminate them. And people were signing up for these assignments. Um, and we even have sort of local townspeople turning in Jews uh, in their neighborhood, people who they suspect might be Jews or hiding their Jewish identity. So you do have this really under, you've got this strong underlying current of anti-Semitism which is a feature not i mean not really exclusively to Germany but uh, all of western Europe and then i think one of the things we're seeing in our political moment and this is where there's possibly one parallel is that there is a tremendous appetite for the, uh, for po- politicians who say the quiet part out loud right mm-hmm. who who basically make our grievances seem legitimate and when they speak first we feel empowered to speak uh it, in ways that are uh, harmful or destructive yeah i think you've got a racist society in in 1930s germany that uh has an, a tremendous amount of resentment built up uh and then finally has an outlet outlet to express it
0: mhm mhm and was hitler just uh, i mean such a compelling leader speaker the i mean it's got i mean the, the cultural moment is set for a charismatic Oh yeah. Leader to come on the scene. I I know literally nothing about Hitler other than he's yeah. almost like this nebulous symbol of evil that
1: I don't know. I mean I I I've seen like I've seen every like everybody else the the videos of him giving these strident speeches and he's got these really unusual manner, mannerisms which are authoritative and he's got this strange cadence of speaking which is sort of mesmerizing, right? People describe this really. um that he's sort of un- enchanting um and then he's also got this um german mythology which there's a huge appetite for right and of course it makes sense if someone who's charismatic and strong and shrewd and and brilliant comes along and tells you that actually your society is the most important society on earth um and that it's your destiny to lead civilization to its culmination and climax i mean that that's attractive yeah he's he's Shrewd, although if you read Mein Kampf in retrospect, it reads a little bit like a like a screed, like that the Unabomber might write, or something like this. Like it's not it's not terribly coherent. It's just like an assembled grievances. And but I think as we're also seeing in our political moment, and not just in the U.S., you're seeing this all across uh, the democratic world. A grievance is a tremendously attractive and powerful and delicious uh, aff- affection to indulge, right? And so. Um, especially when you feel like civilization is going to crap or going to hell like many Germans did, uh, grievance can be really satisfying and powerful.
0: Grievance, like I feel hurt by how people are treating us or thinking of us and that kind of defense mm-hmm. mechanism of like, no, I'm not as bad as people think I am. Mm-hmm. And are- totally, yeah. Right? So for
1: the, the in the German context, it's got a few edges. It's got the whole Verm- uh, Versailles Treaty, uh, aftermath of the war thing, but also... Um, you know, all of these theologians, they think that Germany is a Christian nation and they mean this almost in like an ontological sense, right? Like that to be German is to be Christian. Like it can't be another way. Mm. And so that's why they're so like, that's why Altas has so much anxiety about Jews is he sees them as agents of secularization and um corruption, right? And that they are They're all uh, Marxists and they're all atheists and they're going to corrupt our youth. And so he's really worried about that. He's really worried about, for example, Berlin has a really kind of booming gay scene at the end of the Weimar Republic in in the late 1920s. There's all kinds of hand wringing about this. Uh, There's lots of worries about immigration. Uh, There's a passage where Althaus is really alarmed. That he goes out into his university town and he hears people speaking in languages that aren't German. So it feels like German ness is under siege.
0: That, so that's where the conservatism piece comes in. They want to conserve old, you know, our German values and go back to when we were. Yeah, just I don't know. Has that, yeah, it's making sense now. Like that, that that's when you talk about German nationalism and conservatism. Like that's where those categories really do feed into each other, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the socialist piece is an economic view that, again, in, in our current culture today, is associated more with not conservative, but that that's that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't, there's nothing intrinsic about socialism that has to be conservative or not conservative. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah,
1: it was a. It, there was also kind of a thought, I mean, uh, here again, it goes to this, like, they all have this this view uh, of a national type, and the German national type, they just see as incompatible with kind of uh, modern values. So they're suspicious of capitalism, they're suspicious of a democratic government. You know, Germany, uh, since uh, the Treaty of Westphalia in the 17th century, had basically been a monarchy. And that's all people had ever known sort of centralized
0: power Oh, okay okay to your knowledge like how did a chunk of the german church go along with this like was the church too just as racist or were they just duped or yeah what what like i guess well you're a guy that you're studying like for a long time he was very excited about this movement as a christian
1: yeah yeah so this is a really complex question and there's a bunch of strands going on here uh one thing to say And there's lots of scholarly debate about whether Nazism understood itself as a Christian movement. Okay. Um the consensus has been basically not, although there has been a really important book called The Holy Reich. It's by uh, a guy named Richard Steigman Gall, and he argues uh, quite persuasively that uh that many high-ranking Nazis were Christians or not, but at the very least, uh nazism saw christian rhetoric as their ticket to power so particularly the early hitler in the early 30s uh, does make these sort of signals interested in christianity he wants to put it back to its rightful place as germany's worldview, and he wants to recover uh, christian values um and so early hitler you i think it's not too hard to see why some christians were saying like okay yeah um this is how althaus thought about it yeah he's rough around the edges I don't really like the brutality that seems to be intrinsic in the Nazi platform, but if he's going to put Christianity back at the center of German life, then I think we can sort of make our peace with it. That's what he thought until about 1937 or so. There were other Christians who um, I could only describe it as an unrequited love affair with Nazism, right, who are really excited about the Nazi platform. There's, I mean, uh, you may be familiar with the University of Jena in Germany it produced a bunch of like quite important New Testament scholars they bogus think tank to write up a basically a manifesto to theologically support the Nazi Party platform um, so some people go all in that's sort of a lunatic fringe but I think most sort of centrist Germans just sort of saw Nazism as as a chance to reverse the tide of secularism and uh, Restore Germany to its Christian
0: heritage. So 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 you're saying some of the more moderate Christians or whatever just didn't love everything about the rise of Nazism, but as a means of restoring Germany to its Christian heritage. I mean, the last five minutes of you talking, are you trying to <laughs> map all that on some of the stuff going on today? Or is it just that I mean there are some obvious differences, but are there are there some just uncanny, interesting Commonalities that you see when you look around at kind of certain movements today. And I know there's a big discussion about Christian nationalism. I mean, again, I don't, I don't, nothing from the past can perfectly map onto the future, but there's, there seems like there's some interesting parallels there. You, can you go there for us for a little bit?
1: <laughs> uh, I can with great fear and trembling. Uh, I will be, uh, I'll try to be quite deliberate and careful and I'll try to be charitable here too. Just
0: how about this? Be t- turn into an atheist historian that's just looking at history with no dog in the fight, I guess. I don't
1: <laughs> Okay. All right. I can try that. Uh okay. I do think it's important to state and we've already covered this that there are I think probably more dissimilarities than similarities, right? So I mean America is the is the oldest contiguous democracy in the world. Um it's not the most ancient Democracy, but it's the longest-standing democracy. At, uh, a couple hundred years, our institutions so far have proved to be quite durable. We don't have a state church, right? So I'm a pastor, but it's it's written into our constitution that the government doesn't pay my wages. Um, and this was true of, of theology professors also, right? So they, they there is an economic pressure for them too, not to uh, mm. not to make a fuss. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, lost part of his salary as a result of this, uh, and then gave another share of it to a, to a Jewish colleague who had lost his salary completely. So there's that factor too. I also want to point out, before I point out some similarities, we have got to stop it with the Holocaust uh, comparisons. <laughs> uh, we've just got to, you know, like a vaccine mandate is not remotely close to the Holocaust, right? A mask mandate is not remotely close to the Holocaust. Uh, okay. The government asking you uh, to... <laughs> to suspend some element of some of your minor civil liberties during a pandemic is not a Holocaust, right? In fact, I would argue theologically, the Holocaust has no analog, right? It's, it's truly absurd in the sense that it defies all logics. So I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for those sorts of arguments. Um, so similarities, I think there are a couple of important ones. Um, I think, uh, number one, you've got a similar sort of um, supersessionist hermeneutic going on where a lot of these theologians thought that Germany was basically the new Israel, or they had been tasked with kind of carrying on the work of God's kingdom in the world. And this is why they're really anxious that uh, Christianity appears to be in decline in the early 20th century. And there are some expressions of American evangelicalism um, that has a similar hermeneutic that uh, America is somehow chosen in a way that an, is analogous mm-hmm. um, to Israel. And that that explains some forms of American Zionism and also this American exceptionalism. And I think, uh, I mean, to be perfectly candid, I think it, it, it rests on a really faulty hermeneutic. I don't, I don't think there's any grounds at all uh, to conclude that America is elect in the way that Israel is. And real problems ensue when you think yeah. that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or or even like just the um when you when you're saying that like Nazism wasn't a and I first of all I appreciate you leading with the very important differences. And I, I think it's just sloppy and it's just it's just it's just yeah, it's just sloppy. When when people kind of try to map typically, right, it's Republicans onto Nazi Germany, but you you see it from the right saying that, you know, the left is they're a bunch of Nazi fascists, you know, telling everybody what to believe and what to do. And 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 again, there's there's pieces I'm like, yeah, I could see I could connect some dots, but it just seems intellectually sloppy to try to map it onto perfectly. Um, So I appreciate that. But um, not the Nazi party, not actually really being a Christian movement, but using a Christian base or Christian rhetoric, Christian language when it helps their cause and power. I mean, I see a lot of that. Again, this is, I would say bipartisan, but it would be, I think, primarily from the right that sees this evangelical base as a means of power and, and will do things and say things that, Will satisfy the base i mean do you see do you see that as just as you're talking that's kind of where my mind went i'm like that that seems like a really strong uh similarity like christians in the country being used (laughs) really by for the sake of the power of a certain political party
1: yeah yeah and i i I think yeah i i think there are certainly parallels here and i i think you did well to note that it is bipartisan right i i think um you're more likely to see it on the right, but you can also see it on the left, where um, sort of unsophisticated appeals to the ethic of Jesus are sometimes met, made by mm-hmm. politicians on the left. That um, well, if you're a Christian, then like you must support every kind of immigration, no matter what. Well, that actually doesn't follow. That's not a coherent argument. It's a rhetorical argument that's not meant to be investigated very far, right? And so, um, as you were posing the question, I was thinking of someone like Paul Tillich, who. Uh, emigrated from Germany in the Nazi years, in part because he couldn't swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler, which was required of all state employees by the mid-1930s. And so he ends up in America. And he, I can't remember which of his writings it is, um, but uh, someone out there will know, I'm sure. Uh, But he says, basically, whenever you, and I'm paraphrasing him, whenever you hear a politician say, God, you need to ask which God, Mm. like you need to actually interrogate that. Hmm. Right. We don't all mean the same thing when we say that. So, yeah, you you do have, I think, early Nazism, especially sort of saying, oh, yeah, like we are we're the party for Christians.
0: OK, yeah.
1: Um, and and if you care about the future of Christianity in Germany, then you're going to be Nazi. You're not for these uh, Weimar Republicans who are um, pluralist in their worldview, and they want to introduce all kinds of elements that are foreign to the German sphere. Why would you vote for them? So I think absolutely there's that, a parallel. That there.
0: the, real quick. The, the, so the, the idea that the other political side is going to hinder your Christianity is going to, uh, you know, they're, they're not on your side. We're on your side. Whether a certain political party says we are Christian, I don't think most people would should or would say that, but, I would say that you know this political party is going to benefit you Christians more, and we can join. And that, and also like the intertwining of national values with the promotion. I mean, what do I want to say? How do I want to say it? Like, yeah, just a, just a conflation of national values and religious values. They they making. I almost said making Germany great again. I'm trying to avoid saying that, but like
1: because
0: like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I I think there's so much bipartisan in- analogies here that I don't want to make it a partisan thing. But um, but yeah, this return to historic German values is a thing that Christians should desire. It sounds like when you're talking, that was kind of the appeal that this main mantra of the Nazi Party was striking a chord with even Christians because of their Christian values. Yes, returning to traditional Germanism, traditional this that that's a good Christian thing for us to want. Even if we've got this kind of, you know, I don't know, dictator at the top, says things we don't all agree with, but his ultimate goal is similar to what we want for society too. Would you see that as a parallel?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I think without question, uh, there's, there's a political scientist named, uh, Andrew Manis, and he's talking about the American context, but it works very well in the German context too. So there's some, some crossover here. He says there's two different visions of, of American civil religion. One is exclusivist, homogenous, is the language he uses, right? So, um, American civil religion means that basically, basically, we speak English, we're white, we're Christian. Uh, we we may not go to church really, but but we want there to be churches, and we want people to go there, right? You you might call it, and I I mean no offense, but you might call it country music Christian, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of. Um, yeah, yeah, patriotic, socially conservative. Um, and, um, and Christian, but perhaps not in any sort of robust way. And then Mana says, there's another competing vision of civil religion called, uh, which he calls, uh, pluralist civil religion, which is, he sees basically as, um, as animating, say, American Protestant liberalism, which sort of holds that America's a better place when we have immigrants and when there's lots of different languages being spoken and when there are other worldviews introduced. And I think you can see a really similar dynamic going on in Weimar, Germany, right? There's, Altaus is really worried about immigration. He's really worried about um, changing norms and sexual ethics. And he's really worried uh, that people speak German. That seems to be very important to him, right? Or that they assimilate when they immigrate, okay, right? Yeah. And so he's he's got this exclusivist, homogenous civil religion. Um, and so, yeah, you get a lot of these figures who who, Um, They are willing to say, sort of hold their nose and endorse Hitler, right? Which is rhetoric you, you hear a lot in our context, right?
0: Hey friends, Preston here. As most of you know, I'm an author with David C. Cook Publishing, but I'm also an avid reader. And so I wanted to share with you some of my favorite authors and books. These are authors that have inspired me, uh, challenged me, helped me grow in my faith in new and exciting ways. And I know they'll do the same for you. If you want to find out more, go to davidccook.org forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's davidccook.org forward slash Theology in the Raw. I can't wait to hear what you think. Hello, friends. Registration is now open for an Exiles in Babylon conference, and I cannot wait for this conference. Here's a few topics that we're going to wrestle with. The future of the church, disability in the church, multi-ethnic perspectives on American Christianity, and a conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. We have Eugene Cho, Elise Fitzpatrick, Matt Chandler, Michelle Sanchez, Justin Gibbony, Devin Stallamar, Hardwick, the list goes on and on. Joey Dodson's going to be there. Um, Greg Boyd and Clay Jones, they're going to be engaging in this conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering, and of course, we have to have Ellie Bonilla and Street Hymns back by popular demand, and Tanika Waia and Evan Wickham will be leading our multi-ethnic worship again. We're also adding a pre-conference this year, so we're going to do a, um, an in-depth scholarly conversation on the question of women in ministry, featuring two scholars on each side of the issue. So, uh, Drs. Gary Breshears and Sydney Park are on the complementarian side, and Doctors Cynthia Long Westfall and Philip Payne on the EGAL side. So March 23rd to 25th, 2023 here in Boise, Idaho. We sold out last year and we'll probably sell out this year again. Uh, so if you want to come, if you want to come live, then I would register sooner than later. And you can always attend virtually if you can't make it out to Boise in person. So all the info is at TheologyInTheRaw.com. That's TheologyInTheRaw.com. I think P- people that, for instance, support Trump, I think there's many different reasons for them voting for Trump all the way to like Trump is basically sharing the throne with Jesus all the way to, you know, I hate both candidates, but I'm 51%, you know, like, or especially in the 2016 election, as Bill Burr said, you know, we had the choice between this blatant racist and the devil. You know, <laughs> like and I, I, when I talk to Christians that, I know, a, a, in my anecdotal experience, a lot more Christians that did vote for Trump that were not would not at all be considered like Trumpist. You know? No, yeah, like and wide diversity of of reasons for them. Yes, whatever. Anyway, yes. all that to say, like, um, I think some of the anti-Trumpism is just almost kind of uninteresting to me because it's just it's it's I don't know. It's kind of like playing the same game and just not just failing to understand the complexity of our social and political moment. But,
1: well, I just, um, I'm glad you said that. I, I think um, one of the interesting parallels to is, is the, the anger that is in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, that seems to be, to be really similar. A, a historian, great historian of the 20th century, Fritz Stern has written a book called the politics of social despair about yeah. Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Nazism was, I think, the the rotten fruit of the politics of, of cultural despair. And while the parallels are not identical, we are living in a moment, I think it's really obvious, uh, where the politics of cultural despair are dominating our discourse. And this is true on the right and on the left, right? I just think about how much anger there is. It looks different on the right and on the left. Mm-hmm. On the right, it looks like resentment right and Mm -hmm. so grievance rage Mm -hmm. right on the left it tends to look like self-righteousness or contempt or disdain Mm -hmm. um but like listen as a christian ethicist i mean i feel like i just sort of have to say resentment and disdain are not fruits of the spirit (laughs) right like we got (laughs) we got to be resisting the politics of cultural despair whether we're republicans or democrats or unaffiliated or somewhere in between right right
0: right right yeah i think what was that's so true i i think what i was was trying to get at was like this idea that here's this imperfect candidate. I don't like yeah. maybe a lot of what he stands for, or whatever, but like to get us back to kind of more old school America where those Christian, you know, where, where it was, we had more Christian values when, you know, in the public schools, they weren't indoctrinating our kids with certain ideologies that, you know, I just totally disagree with. We weren't being told we're you know, immoral for holding to be, for being a Christian. It's like, we are a plural society. We can agree to disagree, but now Christians in some circles are made to feel like now I'm like, if I believe in traditional marriage publicly, I'm like, people see me as like fundamentally immoral. We're back in the old school days, you know, Oh, you're a Christian. Obviously you believe that. And if you, you know, whatever. Yes. Um, so I think, yeah. And then they say, well, of these, horrible candidates here's a guy that's just like saying the quiet part out loud he's gonna bowl a ton of shop well maybe he can kind of like be the one to ram through certain things that are gonna bring us back to a better society where um christianity was maybe more tolerant um, yeah. or people tolerated christians didn't think that they were like of the devil and all of that like when when you start heating the heating the rhetoric on both sides and start demonizing the other you know um you know on the one side you have a bunch of baby killers on this side and then you have a basket of deplorables on the other it's like people don't think clearly when they're just when their humanity is just being attacked over and over they just hunker down and say all right well i'm you want to fight fine let's fight and i don't even know where (laughs) this i think it just happened kind of back and forth for a while which as a very awe political or all potters in person to me, is just historically interesting. What saddens me is when so much of Christian discipleship has been very much swept up into these polarized, dehumanizing debates. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you say a couple of things I think that are really important. Number one, one of the things that was really challenging for me about studying Althaus is that I could identify with him in a lot of ways. I I'm conservative by temperament. Like that's not to say anything of my ideology or theology, but I'm conservative by temperament. Basically, my entire goal in my adult existence is for you know no one to ever look at me ever again, which is why I only wear gray sweaters and I drive a beige Honda Civic, (laughs) right? Like I'm that I'm that kind of person. Um, And and uh, I think what you said is really good there. Part of what attracts people to conservative political ideologies, and I don't see this as a problem. I, I see it as perfectly understandable, is that nobody likes to sort of be uh, bigoted for holding views that uh, that are deeply associated with their religious traditions. Um, you know that, and and when when Hillary referred to these folks as baskets of deplorables, that was just a catastrophic misstep because it it feeds the the politics of cultural despair, and and it's mm-hmm. dehumanizing to them. And I'll I'll just say, you know, it it isn't helping the situation to make the other side feel small and stupid, right? So that's important. But number two, it, the another reason it was challenging for me is because uh, Altus tried to exonerate himself, or ju- or yeah, justify his views by saying, yeah, in my personal life, I find Hitler abhorrent um but politically i have to support him and and you know what's so interesting I mean, about that's this that's like word for is,
0: word what so many christians would say
1: to totally right and I, I mean it's easy for me to justify my views that way uh, it's easy for anyone and and so what's really interesting is you know after the nazis lost the war and this is this is in 1945 into 1946 the allies came into all these towns and they set up these tribunals where all the state employees had to go through these so-called denazification trials they had to demonstrate that they weren't sympathetic to Nazi ideology. Althaus failed his mm. in 1945 and lost his position, but then he and was reinstated. And um, part of him being reinstated is he collected all of these letters from students and colleagues in Erlangen who all said privately, he hated Hitler. He told us all the time, but he never went on the public record. So that's uh, very, uh, okay. that's huh. that's challenging for someone like me. Uh, or anyone who's trying to, I think, faithfully follow the way of Jesus in the public square is like, uh, does it cut muster to have private views that you never express publicly? Probably not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the last point you made that I think um, concerns me most, this is the parallel I find most distressing, is that when you see this turn towards a culture war posture, it signals to me that evangelicals, and I'm an evangelical, I'm a Baptist pastor in suburban Denver, I'm an evangelical, right? Uh, it signals to me that we have lost our belief in the gospel's vibrancy. Wow. Um, that we That we don't think that we can persuade our culture to adopt the true good and beautiful in any other way, except by legislating it, right? Um, This is what Jürgen Moltmann in his book, The Crucified God, calls pusillanimous faith, fearful faith. It's fragile. It's it's afraid that it can't withstand the pressures of pluralism. So it tries to short circuit them, right? Eliminate them. Whereas I think a gospel response would be, okay, we realize we have to compete with other worldviews now. Let me show you why the story of Jesus Christ is true, good, and beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of reading, like in Harawas and, and that whole stream of just, um, I think the typical political position or posture of Christians reflects a very anemic ecclesiology. Because um, mm-hmm. it seems that when Jesus broke into the, you know, so it was announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. I, I do, I love the concept of these colonies. You know, the church is like our colonies of heaven on earth. And we are forming our own alternative polis, city, you know, that is, should be reflecting the the kingdom values that are in a sense competing with Rome, but showing Rome a better way to live our, our citizenship on, on earth. And um, when we invest so much energy or hope in political change, I think it just reflects a very anemic ecclesiology and and gospel really
1: yeah and that that's really well said and i like the idea of the colony
0: not and not and so not as a and here's here's where the how wassian people get um critiqued is like well you okay that's just a separatist movement you're just like no 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 it's the best way we can actually influence and and, and help society is by being the church like being the church mm-hmm. adopt, embodying the gospel ethic is not as a way to hunker down and build walls but we're not going to be effective in reaching the world um if we don't if we're not being the church first. So it's not an either or. Mm-hmm. I think that's where he gets accused of being kind of like more of a separatist, but um
1: well, uh you know, you're the Paul scholar not me, so I won't say too much here, but uh <laughs> I like the image that Paul uses of an ambassador. It's a very yeah. suggestive image, right? It is someone who is from somewhere else but lives in the, you know, the foreign territory and actually participates in the public discourse there. That's the, yeah. literally the whole point of an ambassador. Yeah. Right. So that can overcome some of that separatism.
0: And he and Paul, I mean, this is something I'm knee deep in right now, just the, the sheer volume of overlap between the language that Paul and Jesus uses to describe the Christian movement is just the sheer overlap between that language and the language used to describe the roman empire and their emperor and like it's just like they're co-opting all this language which just that alone suggests that yeah that the christian movement is intended to embody the kind of kingdom on earth that other kingdoms are trying to pursue that the gospel is not creating a political i even said that wrongly earlier they're not creating a political societies they're creating extremely political um king you know um, colonies on on earth that are Doing it better than than the kingdoms of the of the earth. Before I, I do want to, sorry, take a a little bit of a turn. Can you help us understand the current conversation around Christian nationalism? I guess a lot of what we've been talking about already is kind of laying some foundational uh, some foundations for that. But what is? Can you define Christian nationalism? I know there's like ten different definitions, and I, yeah, I just have lots of questions about it. Have you? I mean read like have you been paying attention in modern day discussions around christian nationalism is it a lot kind of is a lot like what you read about in in 30s and 40s in germany or is there enough differences or yeah
1: yeah um a little bit a little bit i I, i'll confess here that i mostly read people who are dead in german uh (laughs) and so i read uh (laughs) I read some contemporary literature. I'm aware of the discourse. And, you know, of course, I'm a pastor, you know, with lots of people in my congregation who are deeply concerned about political questions. And uh, I've also got a uh, multi-generational congregation. So I got uh, younger folks who um, have certain views and older folks who have others. And uh, it's hard to negotiate that. So I'm sort of in the thick of it. I also teach at an evangelical seminary. That is trying to negotiate these questions too in real time. What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus in a cultural moment like ours? How would I describe Christian nationalism? Well, I mean, I guess I would describe it at least from my study of the German context. I would want to think of it mainly in terms of a certain kind of response to anxiety over pluralism. That's okay. really how I would want to think about it. Interesting. And, and and pluralism of all kinds, right? Religious pluralism, you know, of course, right. That, Societies that were once more homogenous are getting less so and that means people are coming and they, they believe different things about the world That produces certain challenges that triggers. I think quite an anxious response. I think this is true racially uh, our our country is in, in the midst uh, I, I think of a convulsion about how to think about uh, various ethnic identities uh, trying to share one space without a common vision of the common good, right? Which is basically what liberal democracies are trying to do, which is get people who don't share many values to coexist together. And they try to solve it through freedom, basically personal freedoms. So you've got ethnic, racial, uh, pluralism, religious pluralism. And I I really think, um, a lot of it is driven by changing norms around sexuality and gender as well. There's, there's, um, now, we might call it sort of gender-sexual pluralism, okay. right? and and there's probably others that we could identify, but I think what you're seeing, nationalism of all stripes, not, not just Christian nationalism, just purely political nationalism, is a search for certainty in the midst of uncertainty. And and so what you're getting, I think, is is folks trying to find some solid ground when the ground seems to be moving. And... So I would want to understand nationalism of every stripe, Christian nationalism included, is, as an anxious response mm-hmm. to pluralism.
0: Would a significant part of Christian nationalism be, you know, returning to traditional American values, whatever that means? Hopefully that's the post-1968 yeah. world they're trying to return to. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Would, they, would they see that as kind of coinciding with the Christian mission? Like that would be good for the kingdom of God if America returns to its traditional Christian kind of values and roots, like the, like these two missions, America returning, the church being the church, like they would see this as kind of very much intertwined. Um, would that be accurate? I'm just kind of thinking out loud. But, um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think there is something deeply embedded in the American psyche to that effect, dating all the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Puritans who understand their commonwealth as a sort of expression of a godly commonwealth not quite a theocracy but a civil society that is organized according to godly principles um that's not the only source of the american political identity but it is a significant one right so
0: i mean if i mean christian values are good are from the creator are good for creation so i mean i could say that i I don't yeah even bring that up as like necessarily a bad thing i think the means by which we try to uh, go about that, that that, I think that's where some of the rub meets, but to say, I want the creator's design to be more (laughs) widespread throughout creation. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a good idea. Maybe
1: (laughs) really helpful, really helpful distinction you make there. Um, And, you know, another key difference between the Puritans and I I don't know, a, a Christian nationalist in our context, perhaps is that, uh, the Puritans are really serious about Christian discipleship. Now, you might think it's wrongly oriented, but, you know, I've seen research and I'm not a specialist, so take it with a grain of salt. But I've seen research that shows uh, that lots of people who are who fit the bill of a Christian nationalist, like don't go to church, even the majority of them don't, don't read the Bible, don't pray. It's almost like the idea of Christianity is more important than the practice of it.
0: Mm. Right. I asked on I took a survey on Twitter a couple of days ago. I don't know if you're on Twitter or not. Um, I said, what percentage of American evangelicals are, do you, do you think are Christian nationalists uh, more than 50%, 25 to 50, 10 to 25 and less than 10. It was interesting. It was pretty much evenly, Oh, um, really pretty much evenly. Almost every one of those four percentages got 20 to 20 ish percent vote. Um, now there's two, here's the two problems why, it, you know, I was under a word limit. So, what do you mean by evangelical? What do you mean by nationalist? Because according to some surveys, seven percent of America are evangelicals. According to others, seventy percent. You know, like, yeah, right? But like, yeah, like that that broad percentage might have people that haven't been to church in like ten years, you know, or they don't. You ask them basic Christian doctrine, they wouldn't even know anything about it, but they still identify you on a on a form. Oh yeah, evangelical. You know? Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. So um, and the nationalists. What do you? Like, I had one guy say, "Well, I like America. I I'm I have a flag out front." Um, I'm a Christian. I typically vote Republican. Am I, am I a Christian nationalist? You know, like, so I think good questions. Yeah. Yeah. I just define, I think, um, trying to define Christian nationalism, nationalism is is tough, but what would you, I, I, I guess with those caveats, do you think, however you define Christian nationalism, do you think it's like, why very widespread in evangelical church or less than people make it out to be, or, um. Or do you want to plead the fifth? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: It's a delicate question to be sure. I think one of the problems with the term, which, you know, I think it's a perfectly useful term, but one of the problems with it is the animus with which it's employed, right? It's used um, so uh, pejoratively and uh, so derisively. And you know i i i serve a congregation where there's lots of people like that man you just described like you know they they i have lots of veterans in my, my congregation they oh they got drafted most of them to fight in a war that you know they didn't pick you know mm-hmm. they got sent there it's a really difficult experience they came home they found it hard when they got home they found they felt sort of rejected um speaking of vietnam vets particularly but um and you know and so they they have military service uh you know they they might've worked for the government or something or law and law enforcement. They have a flag, they have a flag in their, their yard, but you know, on the ground, no, none of those people is trying to, to harm anyone. Mm. Right. Uh, Wait, how know, ma- what percentage of
0: them were supportive of January 6th? Cause I see that conflated. Like if you're Christian national Ooh, yeah. really fine, then you're basically, it's only a matter of time to have another January 6th. And I'm like, I don't, I've met a lot of patriotic Christians even lowercase p patriotic like you described i've i've, I've never personally met a person who is supportive of january 6th
1: yeah my, my intuition would be and it's nothing more than an intuition my intuition would be that that's a lot less common than than you might think watching i don't know cnn or something yeah uh, i think it's also i think it's also quite different across age demographics right okay. so i i suspect um among self-identified evangelicals, like maybe even under 40, uh, Christian nationalism is probably pretty rare.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Have you read that book? Uh, who's that guy? Wolf on is defending Christian nationalism. Are you familiar with this? I haven't.
1: I've re- I read a review of it. It sounds interesting, but I haven't read it.
0: Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't know. It's not my area really, but it's just, it's, it's interesting that like we said, mostly it's used pejoratively, but he's apparently, I mean, not at all using it pejoratively, but. Um,
1: well, yeah, no, I haven't read the book, but there, there's a long history of American, uh, sorry, of a uh, Christian political theology. I mean, going all the way back to someone like Aquinas, hmm. who basically says it would be good if, if civil societies organize themselves around biblical principles, not to indoctrinate them, but because biblical principles allow for human flourishing, right? So they're which
0: i would agree yeah i mean is that is it okay to agree with that
1: (laughs) sure yeah i mean i think i think that's generally right now critics of the the Thomas strand have typically said well that doesn't account for for sin uh adequately right and and governments also have to restrain sin and coerce people there's a sort of augustinian realist tradition that raises that critique but i you know i i generally think aquinas is right about that i mean um when when people organize their life individually or co- or their common life in ways that are consistent with how god designed life to function yeah. then flourishing results i think that's true
0: but mo- and most people will look at at least the majority of christian ethical norms that are already accepted in broader western society i mean adultery is not good and and yeah. murder is not good and you know e- even sabbath keeping like don't like Working just round the clock, just working yourself to yep. death, and not stopping and taking. I mean, there's secular people that would oh, agree sure. with Sabbath as again as a cre as this is good for human. So I mean, I feel like them a, a good number of Christian values. I mean, this is this is that book. Um, oh Tom Holland, not the actor, but um, Dominion. Yeah, I think that's his point, right? That that so much of our society has been just our values have been adopted from the church. So, um, and he's not even. I think he's an atheist or not religious. He, he
1: is, yeah. He's a he's a non-religious uh, classicist, and um, one of the things that's so compelling about that book is he uh, he basically says, um, oh, do you like things like human rights and women being uh, <laughs> characterized as people and uh, things like uh, laws against sexual abuse of children? Like he says, you know, you have to thank for that, right? That's that's the Christian sexual ethic.
0: That's wild. There's a, a recent book I read by uh, Louise Perry, something about the sexual, the end of the sexual revolution, or rethinking. She's a secular feminist journalist in the UK, but basically said that like the sexual revolution, I mean, has been incredibly harmful towards towards women. <laughs> it's fed the appetites wow. of of men. Even something like the invention of the pill, which has been hailed like this is freedom for religion. Now, now women can have all the sex they want apart from relational ties. And she says, yeah, who wants that? Men. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> and um, anyway, she, um, she again, not religious at all, but like the underlying ethic that she is kind of seems to value comes really close to a Christian sexual ethic without ever even mentioning it, without even really knowing it. But she's just looking in the sense that like, let's just look at what happens when you pursue, when you just take away virtually all boundaries on sexual um activity or even she has a great her best chapter is on consent how consent is kind of a fraud (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you cannot hold together a healthy sexual ethics simply by consent there's just so many issues of what that even means and power dynamics within that and it's fascinating man. It's, uh, but yeah anyway
1: i yeah i've seen arguments to that effect um And uh, right now I'm teaching a class on theological anthropology this semester and uh, thinking quite a lot about sexual ethics. And there has been a lot of dissatisfaction, even in the last two years, about thinking of consent as the only criterion to govern a sexual ethic. I mean, uh, it's harmful for both parties, degrading.
0: Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This is so much fun, man. And, um, yeah, I'm sure we provoked some thoughts, maybe made... Well, it's not a theological episode. If somebody doesn't leave angry, so um, yeah, yeah, I'll look forward to that one-star review that will result from this. But uh, <laughs> oh, real quick, real quick. So you teach at Denver Seminary. You want to give a shout out to Denver Seminary and uh, convince somebody why they should choose that seminary over others. <laughs>
1: oh, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I teach at Denver Seminary. We are a uh, interdenominational evangelical school. But one of the things I love best about the culture of Denver Seminary is related to lots of the questions we've just talked about, which is it's it's written right there into our statement of faith, the separation of church and state, which also implies uh, that the gospel is not to be conditioned by any sort of political ideology. So you got a lot of folks here doing work and trying to figure out what a faithful vision of Christian evangelicalism in the public square is that copes with the pressures of secularism and, and pluralism without surrendering a Christian identity, and without succumbing to sort of political uh, ideologies. So, I mean, if you're, if that sounds good to you, uh, there's a lot of good folks doing work here.
0: Yep, yep. I'm a big fan of Denver Seminary. So, you guys, yeah, you guys are doing great work. So, thank you, Brian. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. All
1: right. Thanks, Preston.
0: is part of the Converge
1: Podcast Network.